Welcome to Max Planck Florida's Neurotransmissions Podcast. I'm Jeremy Chang, and today my co-host is Alex Fabisis. How are you doing today, Alex? Hey, Jeremy, I'm good. How are you? Not too bad. So today we were lucky enough to be joined for a conversation over Zoom with Dr. Mark Churchland, who is the co-director of the Grossman Center for the Statistics of Mind and associate professor in the Department of Neuroscience at Columbia University and the Zuckerman Brain and Behavior Institute, where his group is studying the neural control of movement. Alex, we covered a lot of topics about motor control today. What are some of the things that our listeners can look forward to learning about? Yeah, I think we covered a lot of ground, all the ways that cortex could possibly work from discrete cells uh, working for an output, uh, which is what we see in, in some parts of cortex, like the visual cortex and what motor cortex does, which is a lot more complex. And I think what I learned and I'm surprised with is just how complex motor cortex really is, because that's not what we're taught in school. We're taught about this, these discrete areas, right? You know, you, you read how, how motor cortex works in the textbook and then you go like one layer deeper and all of a sudden there's this in, in falls apart. incredible, yeah, incredible <laughs> yeah. amount of complexity that, it, that arises. Yeah. That's a common theme, I think, in, in neuroscience for me so far. <laughs> all the easy explanations quickly fall apart. <laughs> Without further ado, I guess we'll uh, throw it to our conversation with Dr. Churchland. Well, welcome, Dr. Churchland. Thanks so much for joining us today. Um, so we've had a few scientists on the show before talk to us about motor output and motor command from the perspective of the cerebellum, uh, but not the motor cortex um, yet, or rather to get us started, could you maybe tell us a little bit about the parallels between how the cerebellum and the motor cortex are involved in motor output or maybe how they interact? <laughs> Yeah, in primates, the, the motor cortex is, is the principal driver um, of voluntary movement, um, both directly because it projects down the spinal cord um, with a very large um, projection consisting of, of about a hundred, uh, sorry, about a million axons. Um, and, and furthermore, they're the fastest conducting axons in the body. Um, they conduct, you know, 10 or in some cases, even 100 times faster than, than axons that are found elsewhere in your brain and nervous system. And that's in order to cover this long distance quite quickly. And, and, and motor cortex also exerts a lot of control via um, older structures in the brainstem. So it, will, it, it projects to the brainstem and the brainstem also projects to the spinal cord. So the cortex has a lot of roots, both direct and indirect, to the um, spinal cord where it controls the motor neurons, which produce movement. And, and of course, that's the only thing that produces movement, right? If you want to produce movement, you have to talk to the motor neurons. Um, the cerebellum, at least when it comes to, you know, voluntary movements of, of the forelimbs, um, does not project directly down the spinal cord and does not control movement directly. Uh, we, of course, don't know exactly what it does, although, you know, pe people have some, some um, you know, there's a good first order understanding of sort of the beginnings of a story. Um, but its principal role seems to be to allow you to adapt very rapidly um, to some sort of change or perturbation or, or alteration, either in yourself or in your environment. So if you take a movement that you can already make, but it's not going quite according to plan, you know, you, you threw a dart at a dartboard and you missed to the left four times in a row. 
right? Your spinal cord, uh, your, sorry, your cerebellum will um, allow you to very quickly adapt and get rid of systematic errors like that. I mean, it can do it in as little as one or two trials. If you make an error, it'll start to correct that error on the very next trial. So anytime there's an error between what you expected to get and what you actually got, which of course requires that you have some idea good idea of what you expected to get, um, the cerebellum will, will help you get rid of that error very, very swiftly. Um, but it does so by communicating um, with other brain areas, not by going down the spinal cord directly. Um, and it does for things like balance and stuff like that, but not for, 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 um, not for voluntary movement. So for example, cortex has a very strong projection to the spinal cord, which then goes back to cortex, not directly. It goes back to the thalamus, and and it's this famous corticocerebellar loop, right? And so I, I and the, the basal ganglia does the same thing, but presumably forms a very different function, right? The basal ganglia also don't directly control movement, but they're very important for movement because they modulate what other movement generating structures do, like motor cortex. Um, so I would see motor cortex as the primary driver of movement in a, in a, in a primate and especially in a person, um, not the only one, the brainstem can do a lot as well, but especially in a human, um, the, the motor cortex is, is, is probably the most important. And then I would look at the basal ganglia and the cerebellum as, as critical, um, in keeping motor cortex doing its job well. And that was a very long-winded answer. I mean, that's, uh, I think that uh, describes the relationship between cerebellum and motor cortex very well. But I, I guess the question I had is motor cortex itself is also not a single, uh, single unit, right? There are different subregions. Uh, what are the sort of differences across the different uh, parts of uh, what would, I guess you would cluster as uh, motor cortex itself? Yeah, a great question with an unclear answer. So, you know, the, the first careful electrophysiological study of motor cortex was, was not with recording, it was stimulating, um, uh, you know, sort of very early in the last century and by Leighton and Sherrington. And they found, um, and somewhat strangely, they did a lot of their work uh, in apes. And, and I think it had to do with the prejudice at the time that, you know, animals were, were you know, Cartesian automata, and it wasn't clear that whatever we learned from them could really apply to, you know, this amazing thing. And so they felt they had to get as close as possible to humans or nobody would be believe, you know. I mean, it, it wasn't very, you know, even the idea that electricity sort of animated us and made us move was, was fairly new at that point, right? Um, and, and so they did a, a lot of their experiments, you know, which you would never do now in apes. And what they found was um, a very fine-grained map of movement. So they would stimulate different nearby parts of cortex, and they would get, it um, wasn't always perfectly topographic, but little you know, individual places could evoke individual um, movements of the body that could often be, you know, just one digit moving mm -hmm. or one little twitch of one little muscle. And so they had this idea. And of course, then there was a rough map where the, the leg is near the middle and the, the arm is sort of there. And then, then you get into the hand and then you get into the face. And I'm not so, even really sure past there because I don't I mostly study the arm. But so I noticed you're, you're uh, pointing to locations on your head. Uh, motor cortex yeah. is wh whereabout on the head would motor cortex end up being? It's, a, it's funny. It's a, it's a strip. So mm -hmm. it, it sort of would run from the middle of your head sort of down towards your temple. 
okay. um, sort of angling forward as it goes. And and the parts near the middle of your yeah sorry I, I forgot that there wouldn't be uh, noise. <laughs> but the the part that's near the middle of your your head has has the information for your leg in it. So for example, if you stimulate there, the leg will move. As you move closer to you know your ear, your temple, then you get into the arm, and then the hand, and then face and the tongue. Um, and so, Lane and Sherrington's work was incredibly important for. Um, uh, human health, because uh, um, Penfield, of course, picked up on that and and created a map in humans that neurosurgeons could use to avoid cutting out critical areas in in patients who, for example, were having seizures or had tumors. And you would do everything you could to to spare the part of cortex that controlled the body, and especially the part of cortex that controlled vocalization. Um, and so their work in apes ended up being really important for, for human health in that regard. And this is, is this the motor homunculus that we learn about in intro, yes. intro neuroscience that you're describing here? It is the motor homunculus. And I will say it is a, um, it is a somewhat squishy beast, the motor homunculus. The, um, you know, just because if you stimulate in an area, you only get leg movements doesn't mean that it's a pure leg movement area. You can be recording in the leg movement area, and there'll still be a lot of activity related to the movement of the hand. And in fact, Cora Ames, when she was still in my lab, did experiments where there, um, uh, the monkeys were moving both hands at the same time, and or one hand or just the other hand. And even if you're in, you know, we all know, right, that the left cortex controls the right side of the body and the right cortex controls the left side of the body. And if you are unfortunate enough to have a stroke or an injury in your right cortex, you won't be able to move, for example, your left arm. Um, so the whole idea is the right cortex is supposed to only really care about the left side of the body. But Cora found that that was really not true, that you could be in the part of the, the cortex that was supposed to control the left arm, but there was still a lot of activity related to what the right arm was doing. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? We rarely move just one part of our body. It's all about coordinating what all the different parts of our body are doing together. And so as a result, the information is kind of all mixed up in motor cortex, right? There's sort of a, an area that's more leg and an area that's more arm, but it's unclear whether there's really strong divisions. So, uh, yeah, so there seems to be this, I guess, a lot of crosstalk across uh, areas. Was, uh, was that always sort of the idea behind motor cortex? I mean, the motor homunculus itself uh, seemed to be very distinct. And was it, what, what exactly was the thought process between what is what it, the motor cortex is sending from the brain down to the spinal cord? Yeah, well, well you've got two good questions wrapped up in there. Uh, I'll take the first one first. You know, I don't necessarily know the history as well as some people, but I, I know a little bit of it. And I know that early on, um, it was really appreciated that things were kind of complex and a little fuzzy, right? Um, for example, stimulating a particular area could produce a particular movement now, but half an hour from now, it might actually produce a different movement. And so there wasn't necessarily that much consistency between... Um, yeah. It's not like you identify a location and, and it always does the same thing. 
Um, I think Penfield referred to this as the instability of a motor point. Um, I think he coined that term. It might have been Leighton and Sherrington. It might have been Sherrington, actually, but I think it was Penfield. But they definitely understood that things were... I don't know, for lack of a better word, fuzzy. But of course, stories get simplified in the telling, right? And so when you look at it in the textbook, it's this beautifully laid out homunculus. Um, but it's not like it is for somatosensory cortex, where the homunculus, at least as far as I know, although maybe I'm also buying into an overly simplified story, but where the homunculus seems to be fairly rigid. Or V1, for example, which is this perfect, beautiful topographic map of, of the visual system. And yes, you know, there's some sort of effects of things outside a neuron's receptive field. But thinking of a neuron as having a receptive field is a pretty solid idea when it comes to V1. Motor cortex is just a lot fuzzier than that, and there's no way around that. You know, the interesting thing about, you know, if you train a big recurrent network to produce something as an output, you know, your naive assumption is that the thing that is the output, um, that should be the thing that's sort of the strongest signal inside the network. Right. Like, I don't know if I train a network to produce um, a square wave as an output or something like that, um, then, you know, I should look inside the network and every neuron's response should look like a square wave. Right. And, you know, there's some circumstances under which that's true, but usually it's not. Usually. And this is a weird feature of recurrent networks that makes sense only in retrospect. Um, you know, the biggest signals inside the network don't sort of have an extrinsic meaning and they're not the output signal. Um, in fact, it's often the case that every neuron contributes a little bit to the output, but the response of no particular neuron looks like the output at all, right? So you may have many neurons, none of which, you know, they all have some slight resemblance to the output, but not terribly strong. But you know, the, the awaited sum of their activity is exactly the output because that's how these networks work, right? And that's what the output of a recurrent network is. It's just awaited sum of the activity of the individual neurons inside of it. And so what that means is that the dominant signals inside the network look really different from the output. And in this one particular task, which was Abby Russo's um, cycling task, um, the dominant signal inside the network, it's a rhythmic task, so this isn't surprising, is a big circle, right? And um, you can basically think of it as, you know, a lot of the neurons carry a sine wave, a lot of the other neurons carry a cosine, mm -hmm. and so plot a sine versus a cosine, and you get a circle in state space, right? Um, really, it's more like every neuron has some random phase. And... Um, then the activity that's going to be read out of the network is not actually the big circle. It's these sort of little ripples that ride on top of the circle. And so the, the record player was an analogy, right? The motion of the record is not the song. It's not what anybody paid for, right? It's the small movements of, the, of a needle in an orthogonal direction that are the song. But the spinning of the record is utterly critical for the playing of the song, right? It's, it's what part, part and parcel of what generates the song as an output. But, you know, if you were an alien and you looked inside a record player, you'd be like, oh, well, this is clearly just a device for generating, you know, a sinusoidal output. And you'd be totally wrong, right? I mean, it's not there to generate a sinusoid at um, how many... 
RPM is a standard. I guess it's 32, something like whatever it is, right? You know, um, no, it's generating much higher frequency and much more interesting and much more diverse things than 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 the sinusoidal output. So that yeah, um, that 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 analogy is actually used at the end of Abby's paper. But. So we're talking a little bit about how our understanding of you know, the regions of motor cortex are, are changing, revolving. I'm curious, can we talk a little bit about um, population coding um, and uh, related to what you're doing and, and how the theory of, of population coding has changed uh, over the course of, of your career and, and because of a lot of your work? And maybe let's start with what is population coding? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I've always wondered what is population coding because what would be the opposite? Right, that only one neuron does. So I think that's slightly, I mean, I think we all accept that large populations of neurons, um, you know, are gonna be necessary to, to do something as complicated as moving. I think the, the key observation that Georgopoulos made when, when they coined the term population coding um, was that if you record from a particular neuron, you don't have to search through a vast variety of movements in order to find something that makes that neuron respond, right? Most neurons respond in some way during most movements, right? Their activity might go up, it might go down. Um, most of these neurons have very complicated patterns of activity, more complicated than, than was, was sort of discussed in the early work. Once you get you know, better methods for recording, you can see a lot more of the complexity. So, you know, a given neuron's response might be quite multiphasic and it might be a different multiphasic pattern for different movements. But what's certainly true and in agreement with those original observations is most neurons respond in one way, some way or another during most movements. And so that, and it didn't have to work that way, right? It could have been that the, it was some map where, oh, these neurons care only about this you know, 2% of all of your movements, this little class of movements. And then these other neurons drive these other movements and these other neurons drive these other movements. So to me, population coding is almost a meaningless statement now because we all take it for granted, but, but it, I think it meant something real and important originally, which was that basically activity is not sparse. Right, it's not sparse in in neural space. Most neurons participate in most movements. So, so in a lot of cases, um, we think about things being um, energy efficient, right? And and this mm. idea that there are a lot of cells participating in these movements seems very inefficient uh, for the motor cortex to have uh, developed that way. So, what? Why exactly are are these cells uh, act, active for a whole range of movements? Yeah, it, it's a good question because I've had the same thought myself. It does seem very energy inefficient. Um, it may be that, that, I mean, if you think about it, movement is the most important thing that you do, right? I mean, my friend and colleague, Daniel Walpert, is, is, is fond of pointing, pointing this out, right? I mean, it's the reason you have a brain, right? Um, all your thinking, all your perceiving, all your remembering, all your emotions and feelings, they're only there to help you make the right movement at the right time. There's no other purpose to any of them. They're not just there for you to enjoy, right? And they're there to inform your actions. So if you look at it that way, 
think just being able to generate movement accurately, which is really hard, right? I mean, we can't build robots that can move anywhere near as well as, as we can. So presumably that's a very hard computational problem. And I think the solution seems to be, and we can in a moment get into why this probably is true, that most neurons need to participate in, in most movements. And you know what? If that costs you extra energy, well, this is such an important um, thing that you do that that's just the price you got to pay. Um, and I think the reason why it is the case that most neurons participate in most movements is that we're talking about a system that's highly recurrent, right? Where the neurons connect to one another, um, both directly, you know, within cortex. And as we were just discussing through the basal ganglia loops, through the cerebellar loops, back to, to, to the spinal cord and back, even sensory feedback, right? Is a form of, of, of recurrent connections. And if you build recurrent networks that do things, which I finally, thank God, we're now able to train recurrent networks to do interesting things, which was you know, not true when I was in graduate school for the most part. Um, it's very, very hard to keep activity sparse, right? Because they're all connected to one another. It's also very hard to keep activity select, you know, sort of segregated, right? If, if activity, if some form of activity or information exists in one bunch of neurons, it's going to get into a lot of the other neurons because they're all so highly interconnected. And so I, I think that, you know, it's different from say V1 where distant parts of V1 don't really talk to one another and don't need to. Um, just like distant parts of the retina don't really talk to one another and don't need to. Everywhere in motor cortex needs to talk probably to, you know, a lot of the rest of motor cortex. And um, as a result, I, I think it's hard to get the whole circuit active without all the activating a large percentage of the neurons because they're just all connected to one another. That's speculation, of course. But, yeah. So I think that's really interesting and sort of continuing on the topic of robotics, actually. Um, when you think about, or I guess when I think about prosthetics, right, and, and there's been great developments on on in that field and, and having these usable prosthetics and and I guess I would be surprised or there's no way that they're using information from the entire, you know, motor cortex to get these to work. Like to some extent, it can be mm -hmm. simplified in an inefficient way. Right. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it's yeah, it's a good point, Alex. I think there's two things that really aid prosthetics. Right. The first is that they don't have to they only have to read out the activity in motor cortex. They don't mm -hmm. have to create it, right? And I think that really is the difficult computational problem, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know how to solve it, right? If you said, Mark, generate the right patterns of muscle activity and the right feedback control policy. Feedback control policy is just a fancy way of saying, tell me how I should respond in terms of a correction to every possible error or piece of sensory feedback that I might receive. If you said, well, give me the right answers to those things so that I can run across this field full of rocks. Like that, that's a very hard problem. Now, if the brain solves that problem for me, I might be able to read out the activity of your muscles from, from your brain as you're running across those rocks because the brain did all the hard work for me. Um, and so I might well be able to, in the same way that a BMI researcher could, you know, record from your cortex as you run a, across that field of rocks. And I might be able to decode your muscle activity 
you know, maybe not perfect, but maybe with 80 or 90% accuracy. Um, Cause I'm not having to solve the hard computational problem. The other thing that's worth noting is that, that um, most BMI devices are by design and, and this is a good choice. <laughs> um, you know, they're designed to work under very limited circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. They, they allow you to move a cursor around a screen. And that's all they have to do. And so they work reasonably well if you stay within that domain. Um, and, and without getting too into the weeds, we really do find in the lab that, you know, for different domains, different things you want to do, like, for example, I want to decode moving a cursor around a screen, or I want to decode, you know, virtual locomotion through an environment, because we have our monkeys cycling through virtual environments, maybe I would like to decode that so that you know, that could be the basis for a wheelchair prosthetic, right? We find you need really, really different techniques to decode under those different circumstances. There's not like a good one size fits all um, BMI decoding technique, or if there is, we haven't found it yet. And so I think what that means is that all of these BMI decoding techniques are hacks, right? Including the ones that I we've built ourselves and that I'm proud of, they're hacks. <laughs> And their hacks that work well within specific domains, um, but they don't generally mean that we necessarily understand the activity. It just means there's certain regularities in the there's certain relationships between the activity and movement that are reasonably constant within some particular domain, and therefore we can leverage. Like for example, there might be some neuron that whenever you like to move, try and move right is more active, and there's some other neuron that's more active whenever you try and move left. So you, that's, you, you don't know why, you don't know exactly what that means, but you can, st- you can leverage that to build a, a good um, decoder. And you know, BM, BMI engineers, they're engineers. They're, mm-hmm. <laughs> if they need to understand the science to get it done, they'll understand the science. If they don't, hey, if it works, that's fine. I mean, it's, <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't need to be biomimetic. You don't need to read it out in a natural way in order to be successful. So. It kind of sounds like uh, one of the goals of uh, brain machine interfaces BMI is is really to sort of filter out what are the those small populations that are really important for the specific movements that they're interested in. I wouldn't or, quite put it that way because they do typically leverage most of the neurons that are being recorded from, but. You might find a neuron that has a particular correlation with muscle activity in one task, right? Mm-hmm. You say, you know, okay, this neuron, neuron 21, is positively correlated with the biceps activity. And maybe some other neuron, neuron 27, is negatively correlated with the activity of the biceps. So you could use that to, to estimate the activity of the biceps. Maybe use that to drive a, you know, a robot arm or something like that. Because, you know, you know what the mechanical action of the biceps is. So if you know what the biceps are doing, you know that you should flex the elbow of, of your robot arm. What I'm saying is that it's far from guaranteed that that correlation will be stable, right? The fact that that's true when you're drawing doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be true when you're steering your bike or when you're throwing something. Um, different movements and different skills seem to be, this is, I'm, I'm kind of getting a little ahead of the data here, but we've got, this, this is what the data seem to be arguing that we've been looking at over the last few years. And I showed a little bit of it in, in, in the talk. Um, the brain solves different problems in different ways. 
and different different skills use different dynamics and different subspaces in motor cortex. And so it's probably going to be very hard to come up with a one size fits all decoder. Um, and, but that maybe that's okay. I mean, that's not necessarily what you need, right? I mean, if you can restore a handful of key functions to somebody, they 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 may go home ninety percent happy. I guess I'm curious if, if you think we'll find out that that these are kind of generalizable things across cortex. This isn't just a, a motor cortex uh, phenomenon where everything seems to be involved or every cell seems to be involved in, in, in a motor action, for example, to some extent. Yeah, it's a good question. It kind of gets back to part of part of a question then, that you asked at the very beginning that, that I kind of skipped over because I was giving an overly long answer to a different question. I, I think it's unclear at present what will generalize and what won't. And, and maybe a mistake that people made early on is that they wanted motor cortex to be too much like primary visual cortex. And, you know, I started um, my you know neuroscience odyssey in visual cortex, I recorded from, from primary visual cortex and even more so from an area called MT where the neurons are, um, they care about motion. Um, and so, you know, they allow you to smoothly track things with your eyes. They allow you to, I mean, all the things that you need to do, see motion to do, right? Most of them depend in part or in whole on, on this area, uh, MT. And, and the neurons are beautiful. If you move, Activity, you know, if you move dots to the right and you have a rightwards preferring neuron, um, that neuron will respond. Um, and it doesn't care whether they're dots or flamingos or bars or it doesn't matter. If it moves to the right and at, at, at a velocity that the neuron likes, that neuron will respond. And, and furthermore, different neurons are really self-similar. If you've recorded from one rightwards preferring neuron, you've sort of recorded from them all. I mean, they they have different preferred speeds, but they differ in some small respects, um, but they don't differ a lot, right? They're, they're and, and we sort of wanted motor cortex to be like that, right? You know, we wanted there to be neurons that like, you know, rightwards movement, and they're always active when you make a rightwards movement. And it doesn't matter why you're making the rightwards movement or whether the rightwards movement is part of this overall movement or that overall movement. And, and we wanted sort of, you know, lots of neurons that were very self-similar. There'd be lots of rightwards preferring neurons that kind of all did the same job. And the only point of having lots of them was, was sort of reliability. And it's just not what it looks like. The activity is incredibly diverse and heterogeneous. Different, the responses of different neurons look very different from one another. The fact that a neuron res responds most strongly when you're reaching to the right doesn't mean it'll necessarily respond most strongly when you're moving to the right under some other circumstance. Um, and if you think about it, it has a really different job to do, right? I mean, V1 is trying to process visual information on its way into the brain. And motor cortex is trying to create, produce something that doesn't exist, right? It's trying to produce patterns of muscle activity that didn't exist before that, right? Nobody told it these are the patterns of muscle activity that you need to create. Motor cortex, and, and I, when I say motor cortex, I really mean motor cortex and all the other areas with which it interacts, you need to create those patterns of muscle activity. That's a really different job. So now you have sort of, you know, to the degree that we understand V1 and motor cortex, which is debatable, but we certainly understand something about it, you know, those provide two canonical examples um, 
you know, maybe everything's somewhere in the middle, or maybe we need six other canonical examples. I mean, maybe, <laughs> maybe when we try and understand prefrontal cortex, we're going to need to think about everything in a completely different way. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, to some degree, it kind of does break down to, you know, the good models of V1 are, you know, if, if you build a feed-forward model of the visual system, it's not a bad model of, of V1 and even other visual areas. It mm -hmm. just kind of pops out. Not necessarily perfect. There's room to, but you know, the basic properties are roughly right. And if you build recurrent network models of motor cortex, and people have done this with other frontal areas as well. We're not the only people to do this. Um, if you build recurrent network models that do the job that you think that part of motor cortex or that part of cortex is doing, like in our case, generate patterns of muscle activity, but for somebody else, it might be you have to internally time something and then move at the right moment. Those models tend to also do pretty well. Like they're these pretty unrealistic models. We haven't built in layers or different areas. They're just these big networks, but they have to solve the same task. And they seem to use a lot of principles that, that, that we seem to also see in the, in the real data. So, you know, maybe there's hope. Maybe if you can kind of understand the principles that govern feedforward networks and understand the principles that govern recurrent networks, maybe you're 90% of the way to sort of having the tools you need to understand most brain areas. Now you just have to understand how those things work in the context of the problem that's solved by that brain area. There's, you know, that's an optimistic viewpoint. <laughs> it's like the thank you for joining us and chatting a bit about motor cortex. I, I think there's, there's obviously a lot of other uh, topics that we could go over, but uh, uh, if folks were interested in learning more about your work, where would be the best places to find more information about you? Uh, well, I definitely say go, you know, go to our website. Um, uh, mostly you'll just see pictures of us, but more importantly, you'll see um, links to, you know, to the, to our papers. And, and of course, you know, you could go to Google, my Google scholar uh, mm -hmm. profile, but um, I still think, you know, paper, papers are the best way of, 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 of understanding what, what we're really, um, what we're really all about. Cool. Uh, and I guess that that does it for this episode of Neurotransmissions Podcast. Thanks so much, Alex and Jeremy. This has been a production by the Max Planck Florida Institute for Neuroscience. You can listen in on iTunes or SoundCloud. Follow us on Facebook or on Twitter at Neuropodcast.